1: their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Pescovine for May 2nd,
2: 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith.
3: Greetings from Atlanta.
2: And welcome Tim Shiflett.
1: Good evening, sir. Oh, we're excited
3: about the show. It's Tim's anniversary. Happy anniversary. Oh, well,
2: thank you. Yes. Thank you very Happy much. Happy anniversary, Tim. <laughs> yes, <Thank you. laughs> um, tonight we're excited to have um, Dr. Rachel Bittenkoffer from the Niskanen Center to join us for, I believe, the second time to talk about a host of topics, including she's done some research on Georgia's Northwest District, um, where Tim and I live, and I think even uh, further down into Atlanta as well. And so she'll talk about that, among other things. Um, But until then, we've got some topics we're going to discuss, including um, Brian Kemp took a field trip this past week, Um, sitting governor of Georgia, you know, Georgia, one of the largest 10 states in in the country, uh, a lot of things going on in the state, um, things to see, you can go to the ocean, you can go to the mountains, you can go to a big city, and you can go to small towns, but all that diversity of Um, locales in Georgia just was not enough for Brian Kemp, and he decided to visit the border. Now, this is not the Tennessee-Georgia border or the South Carolina-Georgia border, the Alabama-Georgia border, the Florida-Georgia border, or the North uh, Carolina-Georgia border. This would be the border between Texas and Mexico. Um, Catherine, why would he uh involved himself in Texas Mexico relations so I just can't figure it out
3: I couldn't figure it out either it didn't make any sense to me especially when you know we have the lowest one among the lowest vaccination rates we have a lot of things going on here that I'm sure could use his attention but he took off to you know ride around in a boat in uh
2: Texas whatever yeah. Actually, I said that in jest. I can figure it out, but I'm going to give Tim a crack at it. Tim, why did he do this?
1: Well, I I think it's pretty obvious. It's another of many attempts by Kemp to get back in the good graces of Trump and his supporters. He's been trying to do that now for a couple of months. Uh, It it was just a photo op, and – you know, that's – you know, but, but of course you've got to ask David why why Kemp – what particular expertise does he have to offer besides none in, in this particular <laughs> area?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean it goes back to 2018. He was um, the second-place candidate in the Republican primary, first round of voting. Um, had trailed Casey Cagle the whole time. He um, released those ads that had a few things, and one of them was scapegoating uh, Latinos, with um, you know saying, "Hey, I'm going to round them up and put them in the back of my pickup truck." I, he knows he's in trouble, so he doubled down on using Hispanic as a scapegoat to help his credentials with the um, Republican right that has soured on him since um election 2020 when they think that he didn't do enough um during the election i guess to skew the election results to cheat if you will um but that's what he's going to do and it's just a sad state of affairs and i really i want to understand those you know um latino voters that hold a you know moderate to Republican-leaning position on a lot of issues, when they see this, how do they feel? I mean, they agree with him on tax policy and and maybe abortion policy and and different things, but then he sees them using them as some kind of political prop and scapegoating them in this way. How do they feel? I, I mean, I think it would be highly disrespectful uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to hear from some of their voices, and I hope somebody, you know, does some research and some interviews. Uh, Catherine, any ideas?
3: Well, I think you have to you have to look at whether we're talking about um, uh, Hispanic or Latinx uh, citizens or immigrants, because I think there's going to be a difference of opinion. Um. I think that uh, Latinx American citizens are not as uh, or may not be as uh, single focused on immigration as we might think. They have among the same concerns as all of us about the economy and health care and immigration is not always in the top uh, topics that concern them. So but, that's one thing. But as this, far as immigrants, I'm sure that this kind of uh, this kind of stunt is not uh, welcome.
2: Well, this is here's the thing. This is not about immigration policy. I mean, I'm sure that there's some people uh, of lots of different backgrounds that won't. You know, immigration policy to flow in, in in one manner or another. This is not this. This is scapegoating. I mean, you know, you know how there's folks. They see an Asian person and they're all from China. They see a Latino person, they're all from Mexico. They don't say Hispanic. They don't say Latino, Latina. All these things Mexican, even if they're from Guatemala or Ecuador. We know them. We've seen them. We've met them. Those kind of people. And that's what this move played towards. It played towards that base voter. That just has a reaction, emotional, you know, um, voter to the issue of immigration. It's what Donald Trump tapped into, you know, five years ago, and um, it, it just keeps pushing on in the Republican Party. kim your, your thoughts on, you know, what kind of chord Brian Kemp was playing here?
1: Well, the cultural cord, the cultural war, the whole Republican Party is doing that. They're they're turning increasingly to cultural issues. They don't want to talk about economic issues unless it's to scream that Biden is spending too much money. They they've suddenly found their fiscal conservatism again, so they can try to attack him on that. They can't uh get him on anything else. They can't seem to get the Democrats right now on anything else. They don't have any infrastructure plan. They don't have any health care plan. They they don't have any, you know, plans on, on on these uh big issues of the day. So they turn to the cultural stuff, that gins their base up and gets them out to the polls that's that's What they've done for a couple of cycles, and I'm not going to do it again this time, and Kemp knows that. He's one of the champions at it. You were talking about how he uh, acted in the previous campaign. That's what he's going to do again. You you know he doesn't want to talk to – if Stacey Abrams is the nominee, he doesn't want to talk to her about uh, Obamacare. He doesn't want to talk to her about education or you know, the economy or jobs or anything like that. But he'll be glad to talk about immigration and abortion and la di da da the cancel culture and you know, on and on and on. That's the kind of stuff he's gonna to wanna to talk about. Plus, as I said, he really has got to find a way to get back in the good graces of Trump. He knows yeah. that.
2: Uh, yeah, I think this is, th- this is skewed more towards the primary, and we'll get into some other issues. But I do think this. I think that uh, Stacey Abrams at some point, probably early in the campaign because more of her base vote is going to be the interior of Georgia, but it would be, uh, I think, a, an interesting little tour to do a border tour, and it would be Valdosta – uh, Columbus, you know, Carrollton-Rome, Rossville, McKaysville, Augusta, any all, all these places along the border of Georgia, you could do a border tour and really poke fun at this, and at the same time uh, highlight, you know, important issues to cities that are actually on borders of Georgia, um, and that would be different things for different places, because obviously yeah. the needs of Albasta, McCaysville, Georgia are probably – quite different, although surprisingly there may be a lot of similarities, even though one's a mountain town and one's on the doorstep of Florida. Um, but let's talk about this, something yeah. else here. He got some good news this week. You would think he did. Doug Collins said he was not going to run uh, for any office. Um, and he wasn't going to challenge uh, Brian Kemp. Doesn't that take a um, pretty big opponent – for the, gov- uh, the governor's primary Away from Brian Kemp, Catherine
3: I think it just makes Room for someone else to run uh, I mean, I, I'm sure it's a relief Because Collins has a you know Some name recognition and some History, but I think basically It makes room for someone else To run as a Republican Against him in the primary
2: yeah. I don't know who uh, that someone is but. Yeah, Tim, uh, You know, Doug Collins didn't seek the seat um, Is he the A-level contender and now they would have to turn to B? Is there another A out there? Yeah, or he not A? I, had
1: finally, I had finally decided Doug Collins didn't want to be governor of Georgia anyway if, governor, if, if Doug Collins wanted to do anything, he wanted to go back to Washington You know, where he had been But uh, I believe in Doug Collins' case, he was looking at the U.S. Senate race and decided uh, maybe for some, whatever reason, that it was one he probably couldn't win, so he just backed out altogether. Uh, As for the governor's race, there's going to be several people, I believe, run in, in that primary because Kemp is just too juicy of a target if Donald Trump stays angry at him they can run as quote trump's real friends in georgia they can scream that they would have done the right thing during the election they can scream it was stolen this and that and the other and that's the kind of stuff they're going to come at camp with and it, it may very well work in the primary. Uh, Kemp Kemp may really be boxed in right there because his public statements are already out there that 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 came, you know, during during the time right after the election and all and he can't deny where he stood uh at that time and it wasn't where Donald Trump wanted him to stand. So what's gonna change between now And uh, primary day next year, I don't look for Donald Trump to change his mind. He's a very vindictive man if he's nothing else. And I think he means to get some people uh, in that race to run against uh, uh, Kemp or or they will run on their own and then try to seek Trump's blessing after they enter. But he's going to have – some primary opposition i think it's going to be some pretty significant primary opposition and i think uh, it's probably either going to be one of the congressmen or or it's going to be somebody pretty well up in the legislature
2: yeah i mean we'll keep talking about bert jones um as being a possibility from butts county yeah. that area yeah. i you know yeah. We still have, you know, Vernon Jones launched his website. I, I've read his issues page, and I'm like, who's this guy? Um, this doesn't reflect your voting record in the legislature. Who are you trying to fool? Um, it with this it done ain't team. him. He yeah, ain't that's going a guy. Although, you know, Donald Trump has been very positive, and of course, Vernon Jones is trying to run hugged up against Donald Trump. So
1: uh-huh. it, it'd
2: be interesting. Um, but this, somebody's going to have to come up because. You're going to have to um you know establish that case and do your fundraising and start putting your consultant team together. I get the sense that there's a lot of internal polling that's happened or at least focus groups or something that We're not seeing – like, for instance, the AJC keeps doing articles about how no one's running against Raphael Warnock. I think people are putting polls in the field, and it's showing that he's just not that vulnerable, and I think that's what Doug Collins saw. And like you said, maybe he just didn't want to be governor, and that's why he said forget it all. Um, Yeah. But those polls, they're just not out there in public yet. And here's another question I have for you, Catherine, is if you're a Republican pollster – and you know your Republican base is so disdainful of the whole polling science. They just don't answer polls. How do you even get a good race, a read on a Republican primary race these days?
3: That, that, I'm sure, that is a good, good question that I'd love to ask a pollster because I wonder about that all the time. How do we get accurate polls? I mean we've talked about it several times since November uh, with our guests. I don't know. I I mean, I think there's a fair number of people who don't tell the truth intentionally or they can't reach the people. So, um, yeah, I I don't know what the future of polling is going to look like uh, over the next couple of cycles. It's going to be really interesting to see how, how it's handled.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you can get a pretty accurate picture in a Democratic primary, and then I think if you do a general election, you're beginning to learn those touchstones of, okay, how are white college-educated voters changing? How are African-American voters changing? How are they saying they're going to turn out? How are women changing? You can compare votes from one cycle to the next. I think to get a picture, you're like, well, if you're not doing any better in this area, you're in trouble. But in the Republican primary polls where you're just having big chunks of data missing and you don't necessarily know where's the data missing, is it more the college-educated Republicans or the non-college-educated or the, you know, where are you missing that? I think that's going to make it tough to get a gauge on how vulnerable is Brian Kemp. Tim, where do you think they, you know, a possible candidate looks at without that data? To see if they should challenge him.
1: Um, well, of course, like like I said, they're going to keep their eye on Trump and what he has to yeah. say. You know, if 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 Donald Trump says Brian Kemp is is vulnerable, then by golly, Brian Kemp is vulnerable. Because I believe there's enough Trump voters out there that'll in this state that'll make sure that he is sucking I. I think these people need to be pl- paying some attention to social media, especially the presence on Facebook. Uh, a lot of people on the right love to use Facebook, and they're all talking on there. And the Georgia folks that are talking are not saying very many positive things about Brian Kemp. Now, these, these are the Republican voters I'm talking about. They're They're not saying many very good things about him. He has a significant group of detractors out there, a significant group of people that are ready to vote against him if the right candidate should emerge. I don't believe it's Vernon Jones, but I do believe that enough of them are going to run at a minimum to force Kemp into a runoff, and if an incumbent gets forced into a runoff, you know what happens. So I'm going to be very surprised if Brian Kemp regains his footing here i'm just not quite sure how he does it it ain't just yeah. going to the border of, of, of down down there when he's the governor of georgia and like Catherine said all this bad stuff going on here and he needs to be here i don't know being the governor of georgia instead of running yeah. around down there
2: yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I wonder if it got any play in social media. But you know, we've talked about how really on both sides of the aisle, if you the Facebook, you know, is probably a lot more right wing, and you got you know people that are outside the mainstream to the right, and Twitter's you know uh, more to the left. And so, therefore, if you're using social media as your gauge, that's like, for instance, in the Democratic primary for president. Um, Joe Biden's mentions in Twitter are probably next to Neil, and yet he won, mm-hmm. um, you know, the nomination. And so, therefore, there's a whole bunch of people that either a don't spend a lot of time on social media, or b don't get political on social media, and that may be your plurality of voters. And so, we don't know how they think because we don't have the mechanism to find them until polling. Until really Republicans trust polling again,
1: Mm, Uh, and I don't know what's going to make it. Yeah, that's the
2: problem. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely the problem. It's not like they stopped understanding how to use math. You know, for a while they had trouble reaching people on cell phones, but they adjusted to that. They figured that out because it was like there was a disconnect, but the people weren't working against them. Now they have a segment of the population that's working against the science. And, you know, and that's hard to overcome when people just, you know, don't want to play, you know, the game you want to play, if you will. And so um, a difficult problem. Uh, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll see in time who emerges to um, challenge Brian Kemp, but right now we just don't know. Um, well, let's kind of talk about another topic real quick and, and get started into it, and that would be the census. The census data came out, and I don't have the map all in front of me, but I know that um, Florida gained a seat, Oregon gained a seat, Texas gained two seats. Um, some places that lost seats were New York, um, Pennsylvania lost a seat, um, I'm trying to think of some other. there were some places that were predicted California. to lose one that didn't. Uh California lost a seat for the first time really. Is that first time in history California lost a seat, yes. Catherine? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah. So um let's see. Um
3: Illinois lost, Ohio lost, and West Virginia lost,
2: along with the ones you yeah. mentioned. Well, i tell you what, y'all go ahead and be discussing that for just a little bit and um, about the, the... – Yeah,
1: I'm here. David apparently is not here. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at the list, Catherine, of states who had gained. And, you know, it was no surprise that Texas was going to get a couple um, – That Florida was going to get one. I was really surprised to see Montana, of all places. Me too. I
3: was like, what? People are moving to Montana?
1: And Oregon get one. But if you you, – we thought we might take a bath on this census thing, but the way it looks – if this census had been in effect during the presidential race, it would have made a, a difference of a grand total of three electoral votes. The Republicans would have gotten three more electoral votes, and Biden would have still easily won the electoral college. But where do you suppose the, peop- the, the people in Montana are coming from? I mean
2: – Well, i, 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 I don't y'all don't mind – Let's go ahead and uh, put a pen in the Census Talk because I'm so excited to welcome our guest on the show for the second time from the Niskanen Center, uh, Rachel Bittencoffer. Oh. Welcome, Dr. Bittencoffer.
0: Well, Thank you, and I'm no longer with Niskanen. It was a, a lovely uh, experience, but uh, they're, they're, uh, we are not together anymore.
2: <laughs> I'm so I have sorry. Moved I have...
0: on to... No, it's fine. I've moved on to other other things, so.
2: Yes, but but still the same research uh, base of just researching politics and really kind of future trends, uh, not looking back, you know, two decades, but looking ahead and seeing what's going. Um, well, that's excellent. Well, let me, um, my first question I wanted to ask you about was um, kind of the political messaging around COVID. I've noticed that you um, uh, have been posting it on social media, talking about how, you know, we've got this disease, and we should have talked about it and be on the same page medically, but we're not. We're quite divided oh on masks, vaccines, everything. What's your advice to how things should be politically messaged to where really we could just get more people healthy, not talking about how one party or the other could um, gain politically?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, when I talk about it, I, I really don't care about the politics. What I'm talking about, though, is, you know, my, for, for the benefit of your listeners, I am a trained political scientist with a Ph.D., and my area of expertise is voter behavior, political behavior, elections, and polarization. And polarization I mentioned because we, it's true that we have gone through other public health emergencies, um, pandemics, rolling out big vaccine programs, but we have never done one just like this because we have a natural, like, segment of the population that we call, like, vaccine hesitant, right? And that's normal. Like, you always have that, of course, like, because of the information age and, you know, the myths about, you know, autism and and things like that. We're, We're living in a time period where conspiracy is a, is a great wear to sell and, and it sells very well online. But um generally speaking, that's what we would have to contend with. A, a small segment of the population that just won't take it because they're, you know, what, for whatever reason, right? Uh, but this time around, we're dealing with a new phenomenon and it has its roots back all the way back to when COVID first set in. I mean, not the very first weeks, but you know, um, pretty quickly into the response when it became politicized, right? And that, you know, to be frank, was was a product of how Trump managed the pandemic and, and you know, decided not to follow the science, right? <laughs> but um, now it's kind of a tribal thing, right? So what we see in the data is really, really concerning because, as you guys know, we have to hit a certain threshold of the population, and we already have our denialist or our hesitant population. Now we have partisan denialism, and it's, you know, 40, 45% of Republicans in surveys telling us they don't want to take the vaccine uh, as, as part of their identity. So what we really need more than we need anything else is Donald Trump to come out and ask his people to take the vaccine.
2: Mm. Yes, I, I know how slow it is. Uh, the county in which I live in and Tim uh, worked his entire career in, um, the vaccine rate is 22% of fully vaccinated. Uh, and the vaccine's been available for months now to at least parts of the population. Um, the county next door where Trevor Lawrence went to high school, just putting it in context of the news the weekend, um, 17%. And that's actually a kind of a emerging suburban county of Atlanta. Um so. Right. Are- and,
0: and that would never, never happen if it had not become like this badge of honor. And and frankly, it's really disingenuous because it, it is pushed largely by right wing media hosts. And I guarantee you, every one of them have the same vaccine, right? Uh, Donald Trump got the vaccine. He got it even after having COVID. He he didn't do it in public like some politicians do, but he did do it. And I think, ultimately, we're really, really in a rock and a hard place. And you know, Trump likes to make money. I, I'm not opposed to just paying him to do it if it if it keeps us from going back into another pandemic with a mutation.
2: That, that's a sad state of affairs if you'd have to be paid off um, for something you should just want to do, like all the other presidents, including George Bush. I mean, he was pretty public about it uh, to try to help things out. out. Um, well, Trump is a unique individual, so. <laughs> that was being kind. Um, well, let, let's go ahead and then um, talk about uh, a, a few, I guess even months ago, you had – looked at doing a project uh, uh, some type of polling project and looking at georgia's 14th district and marjorie taylor green and um you know just the politics yeah. surrounding her i think you actually expanded it to include all of georgia which probably was a good idea given that the 14th district of georgia could change in redistricting so we don't know yeah. where she'll pop up next so you, i think it was a wise move um what did you find out in some of your research data
0: yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that survey, which I uh, crowdsourced to be able to to do. And I designed the whole su- survey, but it was administered by a reputable polling uh, firm called Public Policy Polling. And it's available online. If you Google uh, Rachel Biddecoffer and the cycle, you'll find it. It's not, it's not a firewall, so people can see it if, if they want to sign up for a free view. Um, anyway, the survey was designed to call attention to, again, this polarization, hyper-partisanship problem that we're having. And it's because, you know, when we talk about those things, as I just pointed out, you know, we can see quantitatively what polarization is doing to behavior. So it's not a buzzword to say that we're polarized. And we are mathematically in terms of people in Congress, our courts, our public in a time period where we would assume the only other time period public opinion would be so uh, divided and and the public would be so intense would have been right before we collapsed into the Civil War, right? So I did that survey because, um, as you guys know well, down in Georgia, we had an election. and In fact, we had a couple good elections. And, and just like in other places, um, because of the Republican recounts and challenges, we actually now know – that we had one of the, you know, we, our, our election has been the most vetted election in the history of the country, right? It was um, turned over with a fine to, um, comb tooth, to, tooth comb, to look for any, um, you know, um, uh, identifiable fraud, you know, malfeasance, some, you know, uh, illegal people voting, and it, 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 they were unable to produce any evidence. Now, I know people heard a lot of, musings at press conferences, but when they got to court where you can get in trouble for six things, there was no evidence presented. Yet, we have this massive problem where half of the electorate thinks that Joe Biden stole the election, that there's been, you know, fraud, and and it's it's sad because we actually had the best election cycle we could have ever had, the highest participation rates we could ever have, the most rich, um, you know, tapestry of America voting. So um, one of the things that I wanted to highlight is that Marjorie Taylor Greene, although she does have aspects that are certainly not typical of your rank-and-file Republican, in terms of the extremism problem in the GOP, is fairly representative of the modern Republican coalition. And the reason is that the voter base has grown, um, unfortunately, very ideological. I mean, it's, it's a product of... Um, a homogenous group of people, right, We're mostly white, uh, uh, um, mostly conservative. They're not uh, as ideologically diverse as the Democrats. And they're organized around ideology, the Republican Party. And so what we really are seeing now is Republicans rejecting wholesale the idea that Joe Biden was uh, elected. And when I ran the survey, which is now a couple of months ago, it, was, it had begun to kind of reframe the Capitol Hill insurrection in less, you know, strident and concerning language, and um, I found that only 19% of Georgia Republic or um, yeah, 19% of Georgia Republicans really think it was an armed insurrection.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, that's amazing to think because um, when you see the totality of the video. I mean, there's no question about parts of that were just horrific. Um, I did want to ask you, um, were you able in this poll, or did you choose to um, do any direct polling on, say, Senator Warnock, Governor Kemp, or Marjorie Taylor Greene on their chances for re-election?
0: No, but I can tell you exactly what's going on with that. I mean, you uh, introduced me as a, a data uh, analytics person In fact, I, I was just digging really deeply Into my 2020 modeling Where I'm looking at the results of the elections And sussing out what really happened Which you don't tend to hear much on TV From uh, pundits, right um, And, you know it, it, the, the, uh, the, the low and the hoe of it is You know, we've we got Two different situations, right We've got a statewide race with Warnock And the Kemp uh, race and, and then you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene Who serves in a congressional district And one of the problems that we have in our congressional districts is that they are not drawn in a way to be competitive with the other party. Marjorie Taylor Greene's district falls into that category. So, you know, it's hard for me to imagine her getting ousted, and the reason is because Republicans don't vote for Democrats, right, um, and even right-leaning independents don't. So she, she can't lose unless that happens, and that's not likely to happen. Because, again, a show in the survey, if you look through the survey results, that, you know, her views, I mean, she certainly does have some QAnon stuff, but, I mean, I, I would argue not thinking Biden's a legitimate president is pretty out there, and that's certainly her view as well.
2: Yes. Um, so in your modeling, um, we've, we've noticed in recent weeks they said that you know, no one's lining up to run against uh, Senator Warnock of any note. Uh, there's still the possibility of Herschel Walker moving back to the state, um, but then he's not like the traditional politician that would be coming up against a senator that served you know just a few months now. Is there anything in the polling that shows that Raphael Warnock just doesn't look beatable, and that's why the Republicans are kind of scared?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they are kind of scared, right? Um, but to tell you the truth, they have put the mechanics in to beat him. So I would be very surprised if they don't feel the robust challenge to Warnock. I mean, I, I really will. I'll be very surprised. Now, it could be – so the way that these candidacies work – is that um, we have these bellwether elections in my state, in Virginia. The off-year gubernatorial state legislative cycle is a bellwether for the midterm, and it may well be that these candidates are waiting to see how does Virginia go. Because if the Democrats are really weak, that would be um, more enticing for quality candidates to throw their hat in the ring.
2: Yes, well, I'm going to um, pass it to my co-host Catherine, who will pass it to Tim uh, for some more questions. Catherine,
0: forgive my dogs. Too, I'm outside with <laughs> them. Hey, <stop barking. laughs> we love hearing dogs.
2: We it's like they dogs. know,
0: it's you know.
3: <laughs> I have no idea. I looked around on your um, Twitter and read a lot of it, and and I uh, I really appreciate your uh, your tone. I enjoy reading what you write. But I wanted oh, to ask thank you. you about something. I don't know if you have done any polling on this, and if you don't want to talk about it, we can talk about something else. But I've been thinking a lot lately about um, marijuana legalization. Yes, yes, and good. Decri- and decriminalization. And how I feel like it might be a, um, a sort a of, issue. Um, a wet, yeah, I think it might be something that um, could attract, additional voters especially young people um people of color but i also think there's an economic um uh uh, priority in there that um and i just think that that it's like a package i could imagine the biden administration just coming up with a package about you know changing some of the like banking laws and some of the um, federal laws around marijuana, and then also doing some small business development for um, because i I understand from some reading that I've done that a lot of big companies are snatching up these um, these depots or whatever dispensaries, but if we could try to allow some people of color and people in uh, lower economic uh, circumstances to take advantage of some of those dispensaries i
0: think it could be a
3: really good boon for the economy i just wondered if you'd done any polling on that or if you had any thoughts about it
0: i do have thoughts about this and for anybody that does follow my twitter feed you'll know i talked quite a bit about how the democrats fail to exploit the reality that when it comes down to the politics there's one party that is moving marijuana legalization forward and the other one that's obstructing it. <laughs> Yet, you know, um, in Florida, for example, we had ballot initiatives in 2016, and you had many people go into the ballot booth at the presidential level vote for Donald Trump and then vote for legal medical marijuana. And the reason is that, you know, the Democrats don't make this a referendum wedge issue. So I talk about how Democrats should be using pot legalization to mobilize voters to the polls in the way, and this is a lot less evil, uh, the gay marriage bans of 2004 worked for the Republican Party. And in Virginia here, um, for the benefit of your listeners, the Virginia government was divided for a very long time and uh, pretty much log-jammed on policy, but now it has a Democratic trifecta. And they have just passed a, a legalization bill. It's for recreational uh, legalization. It's not quite as wild and crazy as you might find on the West Coast, but it is uh, allowing people to, to smoke and possess small amounts of pot recreationally. And that goes into effect on July 1st. Uh, and I'm certainly recommending that as Democrats attempt to hold on to that governing trifecta, recapture the governor's mansion, and hold on to their ma- majority in the state house. But they tell voters, look, if you want pot to be legal here, you better vote. <laughs> right.
3: I, I think – Well, and what about the federal issues? Because I know there's well, federal issues around
0: it. Yeah, yeah. That, so my, my are, guess is – yeah, my guess is that the Biden team is very aware of this. I mean, Biden and Clinton and, like, this old-school – Democratic establishment has been very weird about – it's just – they don't understand, like, electioneering benefits, right? So, um, you know, a case in point is minimum wage, right? Um, The minimum wage pulls so well. I remember a few years back here in my survey research center at the university when I was still there – um, we did a poll for your Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and it was obviously very business-oriented, but it asked questions about minimum wage and other things. And I remember they were very surprised that so many Republicans in Georgia want the minimum wage <laughs> increased. right? So, you know, uh, Democrats are, are funny, but I would assume that in 2024, Biden will... You, I mean, I, I know outside groups <laughs> will use this issue and push Biden. I, I would assume that he that they know that it would be to their political benefit to push for federal reform.
3: Okay, great. Uh, thank you. I don't have any other questions, but if we have time to come back, I might I might have one. So I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thank you very much.
0: All right.
1: Nice talking with you. Uh, good evening, Doctor. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, You recently wrote that if there is one saving grace for the Democrats' effort in 2022, it's the urban to suburban exodus that's going on. Would that be enough after reapportionment to keep the Democrats in control of the U.S. House?
0: well, it's a necessary, but not sufficient condition, and let me tell you why right I mean, Democrats okay. are number one facing existential crisis in terms of the upcoming partisan gerrymanders that the g o p is going to attempt to use to um redistrict themselves into the House majority right and mm-hmm. uh, you know people get ho- get kind of caught up on the reapportionment allocations, but the fact is every state will w- will be redrawing their lines and The Republicans have been um, indicating a tendency towards ruthlessness, I mean, passing these voter laws and these protest laws and all kinds of stuff. So my anticipation is that although they're gaining two seats in Texas, they will use the opportunity to find four. And uh, I don't know Mm -hmm. that Democrats understand, you know, in, in the absence of passing a federal voting rights act, they are going to have to respond in light, right? If they want to offset and at least have a potential of holding on to the House and they can't pass the Voting Rights Act because they don't have 60 votes, and obviously the Republican Party is not going to pass that if they're restricting voter rights at the state level, then they really, really need to seriously entertain in New York and California and states that they control gerrymandering their own maps because otherwise we're really looking at um of 2022 that is likely to start with them in the house majority uh that said as you asked me um, about the suburban exodus and it is a necessary but not sufficient condition because it, it it depends right the there's a long term coalitional realignment that's driving you know our 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 voting population now And that is with college-educated voters who are, of course, concentrated in cities and suburbs moving to the left and non-college-educated white voters moving to the right. So, um, you know, in having people disperse into the suburbs from the heart of New York will help. But also you need to lean into your own realignment. The GOP is doing that, and it's unfortunate how they do it, right? Um, But the Democrats haven't quite figured out yet okay, our coalition is now, you know, uh, college education used to be a predictor for Republican support. has changed in this way, and we really need to amplify this realignment effect as best as we can.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of the House, um, and I'm going to make an admission here because I was totally on board with this, as, as were a lot of people. It, it was fairly universally thought that Democrats would do quite well in last year's election, up and down the ballot well we we captured the White House uh, we captured the u s Senate, and we had like a thirty three seat lead in the House. We were expected to pick up more seats. The polls were showing that I was researching like crazy because I'm a political nerd, and I, I was totally convinced we were going to pick up multiple seats in the House, and we darn near lost the House instead. How was I so wrong? What what? Well, I mean? <laughs> you weren't
0: so wrong, right? I mean, all of us were so wrong, me, Nate Silver, <laughs> um, Elliot Morris, yeah. every model, right? So it's either that the models were all wrong or mm-hmm. something happened, right? And it's uh-huh. funny that you should mention this because I was telling you about the data set I'm working on and the analysis, which will eventually uh-huh. come out in an article. <laughs> but I argue that, um, that actually the models and the forecasts weren't wrong. What happened was the Democrats made two really critical strategic blunders down ballot. Uh, some of it stems from their systemic ineptitudes in electioneering compared to the GOP, uh, but the first major mistake was, you know, if you'll notice, Biden really ran, um, and he, I think he was kind of led into this a little bit by Lincoln Project, a nice referendum-style campaign, right? He kept it uh-huh. um, more focused on Trump and ending the insanity in his advertising and, and campaign literature, right? Uh, down ballot, though, where the Republican Party would have, and I suggested, you would you want to carry that all the way down so like the election down ballot should have been a referendum on the GOP and on their mm-hmm. handling of COVID right and they uh-huh. were holding hostage the second aid pass package now uh-huh. you know we have the benefit of, of hindsight too so we really know once the public finds out about these benefit packets how much they like them right um, so mm-hmm. you know Democrats never made those down-ballot races, what, what, what I call nationalized, the way the GOP does. And so that, that's a bad mistake, right? I mean, the whole frame of those races should have been, we need control of the Senate and, and we need to hold on to the House so that we, and, and elect Biden, so we can get you money, right? <laughs> I mean, you, money, right? And you'll know mm-hmm. down in Georgia, that becomes the rallying cry in the runoff. If they had Mm -hmm. done that in the general, they wouldn't have needed a runoff, right? Um, But they didn't. So, um, you know, they, they finally learn how to putt, and they make it a double race, and they run it as a referendum on Senate control, and they tell people, we want to give you money, but you have to put us in power, right? That's how you run effective strategic messaging. Now, the other deadly, deadly fatal flaw, and this is what I think is predominantly responsible for the massive um, Election Day surprise, is that the Democrats, you know, wanted to do right by the public, so they suspended their in-person field canvassing programs, I mean, almost uh-huh. universally. And the uh-huh. Republican Party never stopped, right? They kept uh-huh. registration going. They ran field for the whole general. And I had no idea that they had done that until I went down to Texas and realized, oh, you're not running any field anywhere. Oh, my God. <laughs> And huh. you know i was I was thinking that it was going to hurt them, but i mean it I think ultimately it was a just a tremendous strategic mistake now, morally, should you run field in a pandemic? Of course you shouldn't, but if the other party's doing it, you have no choice, and we really see this you know inability for them to carry through on
1: execution. Oh yeah, okay um. I want to ask you about one more thing before I turn it back to David. You've been talking about Georgia, but I want to go a state south because you've been talking a lot about this state too. Um, is that state slipping away a bit from the Democrats?
0: I'm sorry. What state? I missed it. Florida. Florida. yeah. So, yes, it yeah. is because we have this pro- – they have this problem – with the Cuban voting bloc. It's a very influential vote. It's, you know, a coalitional vote or group vote kind of, right? And it's down in Mm -hmm. that Miami-Dade area. And it has always favored the GOP, but it has become um, more so, right? And Uh they are losing, um, you know, the other problem is it's not being offset by the Democrats protecting the rest of the Latino vote, because with Latino voters, they're very unique. Um, we talk about the inelasticity of the electorate and how most, vote. I mean, almost 95% of all voters have a vote decision tied to partisanship, and it's just purely tied, right? Um, but within mm-hmm. the Latino community who is not partisan, there is a fairly robust persuasional effect, right? And so Democrats are uh-huh. underperforming that, and they're underperforming the turnout component. Those two things mm-hmm. combined are, 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 are really preventing them from offsetting that miami date advantage. That said, I mean, with the upcoming cycle, right, Marco Rubio is a Cuban-American. It is right. um, impossible, in my opinion, to win that state unless you nominate on the Democratic side for Senate. The governor's race is another story, but for that Senate race against Rubio – your only hope of fracturing, of beating, winning statewide against him is to fracture the Cuban-American vote, okay? And okay. the only way to do that is to nominate somebody who is going to, you know, um, identify with that community, and uh, especially because it has to overcome this, you know, partisan bias towards the Republican brand. But guess where, where the divide is right to exploit? It's generational, right, because Cuban mm-hmm. Americans are no different than any other American group. When you look at them in terms of their issue preferences, their vote, like, you know, everything is different between the older and younger voters. So you really have an opportunity, I would argue, with the right nominee to divide that Miami-Dade block generationally.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, now now uh, to go with that, in the governor's race – how would Val Demings do as an opponent for Governor DeSantis?
0: I think she's an excellent candidate for the governor's race. Yes, yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, if it okay. wasn't for the fact that you cannot win in Florida statewide without breaking that Miami-Dade vote, then Val Demings would uh-huh. be an excellent candidate in either race, right? But we, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, I am assuming – I mean, let me put it this way. I will not spend any of, of my um, efforts in, in Florida – Statewide, if they don't manage to accomplish that one strategic thing. I mean, the, the Republican Party, by the way, is very shrewd at what we call descriptive representation. So when they want to win uh-huh. something that, you know, that would give them an advantage to have a candidate that represents the community, they always exploit it. Like uh, when they took that California 25th special election, Who did they run? Uh A Latino candidate, right? Uh, If you want to win statewide in Texas, what do you need? A Latino nominee. So it really is, um, you know, uh, interesting to me that the party that is better with diversity, I mean, obviously now the Republican Party is falling into um, extremism on race, um, has not ever really appreciated that if you build it, it, it will come, right? So like Jamie Harrison, for instance, didn't have a giant Rolodex. And, you know, start his race capable of raising $100 million, which is how the DNC recruits and thinks about their candidates. But Uh did Jamie Harrison raise $100 million for a very long shot race? Yes, he did. And why? Because he had charisma. um, South Carolina has one of the heaviest uh, African-American populations in the country. And he it's organic, right? So if you have the right candidate – and you run them in Florida, the money will come, right? You shouldn't be
2: letting All money get right. paid you run.
1: All right, and I appreciate that. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David?
2: Yes, and before we get to that final thing, I would say that I think Jamie Harrison and Amy McGrath, also um, their opponent helped them raise money. I remember in reading old yes. pro wrestling magazines, they'd have the most uh, cheered list and the most hated list. And I think uh, sometimes, particularly in Democratic politics, we have people on our most hated list that we don't look at the demographics of the state, but will go after that person, like uh, Mitch McConnell and like uh, Lindsey Graham, as well.
0: No doubt. Yeah. So I mean, for sure. I mean, when you have, uh, uh, I mean, and you know. Obviously, the Kentucky Senate race was not – I mean, if you follow my research, I'm talking about the movement of the electorate from the left to the right, these realigning coalitions, chasing an almost entirely white, very uneducated electorate in, tech, in Kentucky, though you may occasionally get a, a Matt Bevin who is so obnoxious and horrible as a governor nominee that you can um, elect a Democrat at the gubernatorial level, you're not, you're not flipping tips. Uh, Kentucky you know even with a compelling Candidate so um, you know The party does look at They still haven't made this transition yet They like you know a, a personality Oh Amy McGrath and she's in Kentucky So yeah we'll go there right But whenever you need to raise money If you happen to be running against uh, you know Literally the ghoul of the Republican Party other than Trump It's very handy
2: Yes and, and I think uh, in, in the Case of Kentucky um you know, Matt Bevin did a very poor job on K-12 schooling, and that's an issue where, you know, 90% of the state's kids yeah. roughly go to K-12 schools. And that's one reason, like Brian Kemp, that's one issue he's not been, you know, horrific on is K-12 schooling. And so therefore, that's going to um, factor there. Uh, well, Dr. Benkoffer, I wanted to leave you with a chance to tell us about the cycle and any other endeavors where people can read you, watch you. Uh, just uh, soak in your political knowledge.
0: Well, I do uh, give it away for free all day on Twitter, and I am um, also um, you know, hosting a sub stack. It's largely my podcast that's hosted through there. Or occasionally I do written material as well. I've got some great episodes coming out the pipe. And, um, you know, there's a the free option, but you can also support my work. I am a, I am a person that lost my, <laughs> lost my economic vi- viability trying to save American democracy. And so, you know, I um, now am looking for, you know, I'm supporting myself like an entrepreneur, I suppose you would say. And, uh, you know, I'm also getting my hands a little wet and trying to, to actively help Democrats stop sucking at electioneering.
2: Yes, well that's that's great to hear We thank you for coming on the show And uh, hopefully you'll be back in the future with us
0: Well thanks so much for having me Thank you Good night guys
2: Yes, well go ahead and uh, make sure That you um, listen to Rachel's podcast Read her um, newsletter On Substack And uh, support her if you can That'd be great Um, Well let's get back into the census I heard y'all talking And I'm going to say a little note here you know, a lot of fancy shows, they have a host and they have a producer, and that's two different people. Of course, we don't have that robust budget, um, and so therefore I do both roles. So I had to switch over quickly and be producer for a second is what happened. But when I came back on the air, I heard y'all uh, talking about Montana and why people move there. I take it y'all are talking about the fact that Montana will now have two congressional seats. Right. Um, yeah, so Tim, what were you saying about that?
1: Well, we were just trying to figure out where the population would have come from to suddenly show up in Montana. Has this been going on for a long time, and were they just a a whisper short of that extra congressional seat? Have they had an influx of people move into the state recently? Do either one of you know what's going on that would have states like Montana and Oregon – suddenly gaining uh, congressional districts, and these are states that are, you know, to be charitable, not heavily populated at all.
2: Yeah, I I will say this. I saw an interesting map. You know, when you hear so-and-so's losing a seat, it sounds like everybody's packed up the moving vans and, uh, you know, they vacated town. Uh, Actually, only two states in the last 10 years lost net population. And one mm-hmm. was Illinois, and the other mm-hmm. one I want to say was West Virginia, but I, I wouldn't swear to that, but I know, I remember seeing Illinois. It's only two states that you met lost population. The other 48 gained population. They just lost it relative to other states that had massive gains. Right. Interesting fact. Right. Georgia gained more people than North Carolina did over the past 10 years, even though North Carolina right. – gained a seat. Now, the trick there was um, North Carolina was almost ready to get another seat last time, and it was between Georgia and North Carolina. Georgia got it, and this time North Carolina got it, so it's a lot. Of, it could be a little building process over time. Montana's a huge state, and so it has a few cities, and so some of those places you know, will grow over time because different people are going to want different things out of life. Montana would be too cold for me, but I'm sure in the summer it's a nice place to hang out for a while. Catherine, do you know anything about Montana's population?
3: I I don't know uh, why anyone. I mean, I've been to Montana. I don't know why anybody would want to move there.
2: I mean, it's <laughs> beautiful.
3: It's a, it's a nice place to visit in the summer. Um, uh-huh. But I would be interested to see what that what the, you know, data is on that. Is it? Is it retirement? Retirement, You know, people deciding to, they want, you know, they live in a busy city and they want to, you know, have some open, you know, space around them in retirement. Has there been a, I mean, I just think it would be interesting to learn. Oregon does not surprise me. Um, I think there's been a lot of activity in Oregon. Um, there's quite a bit of Tech work in Oregon that supports California and um, Seattle, so that mm-hmm. doesn't really surprise me uh, as much. Um,
2: mm-hmm. So, but yeah, and just to think about about really now with remote working, you can live anywhere you want. I mean, used to to really um, take advantage of you know certain kinds of knowledge. You couldn't just live anywhere, now you can. I mean, the Internet's changed the game as far as that is. Now, other things that somebody might want to take advantage of culturally may factor in with cities. And then, of course, then it comes down to what type of environment, like weather and, and uh, mountains or ocean or whatever you want to be around. Tim. Kim? uh,
1: Yeah, I was going to throw this at you. I'm sure both of you have seen this stat, but this is going in another direction and across the country to New York, uh, who, as we know, lost a seat. And here's the stat. If 89 more people in New York State had been counted in the census, they would have kept that seat they lost. Yeah, And Minnesota would have lost it instead, 89 people. There is a prime example that the census count, especially in that state that was hit so hard by COVID early, made a difference,
2: right? Well, Tim, uh, you told the George Washington side of the quarter. I'm going to flip it over and tell the uh, Eagle side. Do you know what state had the highest return rate? Of census applications, no. Oh. Minnesota, and if Minnesota oh. wouldn't had the highest return rate,
1: they would have lost, lost, lost and, their seat, okay. and New
2: York would have kept it.
1: <laughs> and so,
2: therefore, it all—it's a puzzle that fits all together. But really, I mean, there's long term trends, and you know, you're, Catherine, you're mentioning retirees, and it could be retirees. But another way to look—if a place is growing or uh, our aging is school enrollment and if somebody looked yeah. at Montana's school enrollment and they're adding schools that means they're adding you know families and everything else if they're not adding schools mm-hmm. or school children in their schools then that means it would be retiree because that factors in because if you have this kind of growth where yeah you're having kids coming there that means you're going to have long-term growth for the next 50 years
1: and we're a political show, guys, and some things have emerged in recent censuses that are, that are obviously changing uh, the demographics of politics all over the country. When I was a kid, New England was rock-solid Republican, and uh, the upper Rust Belt was rock-solid Democratic, along with the state of Pennsylvania in most elections. And now we see population bleeding out of those states and going south and going uh, west. And we see the southwest, which I would have never believed, becoming democratic. We are seeing the south, deep south now, becoming more competitive, while the north, those areas that were so democratic, are trending Republican. And it's all about population shifts and apparently they're going from cold to warm in this country, right? Yep.
2: Air conditioning is an amazing thing. Um, yeah. But that's you know <laughs> look at, and, and really, seriously. People just didn't a hundred plus years ago.
1: Um, yeah. When
2: I was in Tampa and uh, St. Pete a few weeks ago, I was telling my son about mm-hmm. how nice these cities were, and I said, "You know, really, until around 1900, people didn't go to the beach like they do now, and they still don't go like they do now. But they would, you know, not even you know get in what anything what we remotely call a swimsuit and get in the ocean. They'd walk in fancy dresses and suits uh, along the beach, um, you, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, all these areas that we now consider the sunbelt and, and, you know, happening and exciting were just desolate, just awful to people, you know, in the 1800s into the early, early 1900s. Well, and um excited again to have Dr. Bittenkoffer on the show next week. Uh, Evan Scrimshaw will be our guest. Until then, Ben the Cousin, Good night, guys.
1: We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and.